Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Hi, this is Dick Morris. Welcome to the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro, who is absent today, but is still my advisor, friend, and consigliere. And um, the, we're going to talk about a variety of important things. The, the first is really that the presidential race is shifting very dramatically. Uh, the, the cha- it's been changing less than gradually, rather precipitously, but suddenly it's it's really shifting. Biden is in absolute freefall, and Trump is is inheriting it all. Uh, and uh, and I think that people are coming to the conclusion that Trump really is the essential new president. Now, the move to Trump is something that we experience as observers in the context of the personalities, Trump's evident superiority over Biden. But in fact, it's not that the the names are not important and the men are not important. The important thing is the backdrop to the race, the context in which the race takes place. And that is changing dramatically, and as it does, the construct changes as to who needs to win. Back when Biden, when Trump was elected in 2016, uh, the issue, the main issue then was the economy, and uh, that the Trump administration was one which the economy really did very well, and that became the central fact of Trump's re-election campaign in 2020. And it was a narrative about how did the economy do? And America's progress was obscured by the COVID epidemic that made people not feel the full magnitude of the changes Trump had brought around. But now the context of the race has changed. And it is now no longer the economy. It's the danger of war. And the, there's a, the, the economy still works as an issue against Biden and still is uh, fundamental to people's view of the world. But the danger of war, the danger of World War III, and the reality of the war going on in the Middle East has usurped center stage. And it is now the, the dominant context, the construct in which the races run. And that includes the 
rise of Muslims in the United States, the growth of anti-Semitism, the rampant growth of anti-Semitism, particularly on campuses, and the gradual change where the Democratic Party is becoming the party of the Palestinians and the party of Hamas. A recent poll showed that when they asked Democrats, are you more sympathetic, you're more empathy with the Israelis or with the Palestinians, the Democrats said 41% more with the Palestinians and 34% more with the Israelis. So the Democratic Party has shifted from being a, a party focused on, on, the, on the integrity of Israel and the independence of it and the ideal of Israel to one that's focused on the Palestinians and their imagined and real grievances. And this change, I think, is putting the Democratic Party completely beyond the pale and completely out of the context of American politics. They are literally walking off a cliff. They're backing themselves into a corner, which leads to falling off the cliff. And I think that the changes you're seeing in the presidential race now, the growth of Trump, the collapse of Biden, the um, now about a seven-point margin in the polling, when you say generically, would you like to vote for a Democrat or a Republican, all things being equal, has gone from a slight Republican edge to about a six-point Republican edge now. And those changes are, I think, largely because the context has changed. If the context of the election is war and the danger of war, you can't have a president who's totally feeble, feeble-minded and feeble physically. You can't have a president who isn't up to the job. Because I'm an old guy. Exactly, you are. <laughs> and uh, you're not just an old guy, you're not completely with it. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And Welcome to the Dick Morris Show with Doug DePiro. And uh, call me, uh, comment on what's going on. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. The swing in the overall numbers in the presidential race is so dramatic. Before November 8th, there was not a single national poll that showed Donald Trump ahead of Biden. At, in the contrary, there were at least 10 or 12 polls that showed Biden ahead. Since then... The following poll numbers have come out. November 8th, Trump two ahead. November 9th, Trump two ahead. November 10th, Trump four ahead. November 10th, Trump two ahead. November 11th, Trump one ahead. November 13th, Trump two ahead. November 15th, Trump six ahead. November 15th, Trump six ahead. November 17th, Trump three ahead. November 18th, Trump five ahead. So overall, the average has now moved to Trump with a three-point lead, and it's growing. The average a few weeks ago was uh, Trump slightly ahead. Now he's three ahead, and the average in a few days when the, when the new polls come out and the old ones 
drop-off will have Trump with the lead of five or seven points. So it's a totally transformed presidential race. Thank God. It's important that we understand that polling and the the idea of uh, of who people are supporting is largely reactive. It's largely reactive to events that to the previous election or the previous administration. Uh, sometimes it's the correction of the previous mistake, because even when the previous president was pretty good, there were some things that he was or she was less good at, and the history of the next election is always the reaction to the last one. Uh, we had Nixon, who was corrupt and. Uh, and uh, but did some good things, but uh, we needed a pure president, so we voted for Carter. And then Carter satisfied our need for purity, for honesty, for integrity, but he didn't lead us. There was no strength in leadership. Uh, he was weak, and he let the world manipulate him, so we voted for Reagan. Then Reagan led us out of the Cold War to defeat communism, but there was an entirely new world order now, and we needed somebody to help us put it together on a constructive, positive basis, where it wasn't just anti, but it was a new world order. So we elected George W. Bush. And Bush did a very fine job of restoring this new world order and beginning to have the idea of a unipolar world, uh, but he did neglected the American economy and treated it like he was really more Secretary of State than he was President. And we needed someone who would focus on the economy, so we elected Clinton. And Clinton did a good job with the economy and uh, balanced the budget, but he was obviously morally deficient, and his character was obviously flawed. So we looked for someone without a flawed character, and we chose George W. Bush, whose character was unimpeachable, but he had other problems, uh, he got mired in the war in Iraq, and he uh, he lost sight, really, of the perspective of being president. So we needed someone who would extricate us from the war in Iraq and would lead us away from this kind of military involvement. So we voted for Obama. And then under Obama, we saw the economy stagnating. It was doing nothing. It was going nowhere. So we voted for Trump. In each of these cases, the election was a reaction to the successes and failures of the previous administration. And you can just track it going from one to the other. Um, now, in the course of this, the swing states in America have become increasingly less swing. And nowhere is Trump's dominance more evident than in analyzing the swing states. Watching the swing just a swing Well, they're not swinging so much, the swing states. They've increasingly swung. Um, Trump is now five ahead in Arizona, which is 11 electoral votes. He's four ahead in Nevada, which is six electoral votes. He's six ahead in Georgia. And these are not episodic polls. These are the real clear politics average polling for that state. He's 1.5 ahead in Pennsylvania, which is 19 electoral votes. 
and he's five ahead. He's two ahead in Michigan, but there was a poll just out yesterday that had him five ahead, which is 15 electoral votes. The only swing state he's behind in is Wisconsin, 10 electoral votes, where he's one point behind. So Biden defeated Trump in the Electoral College by 306 to 232. If the election were held today and the states voted as the polling suggests they will, Trump would defeat Biden by 299 to 239 and America would be saved. So this is quite some swing and quite some change. And we need to understand that it is not only the candidates that have changed. It's not so much only Biden's deterioration as a as a person physically and mentally. It's not even so much the celebration of Donald Trump and his accomplishments and his uh, the way he speaks and addresses issues. It's not even any of that. It's mainly that the backdrop has changed and that we need somebody who can be strong and protect America and protect us during this time of global chaos. <clears throat> and as our need for a strong president has increased, our perception that Biden cannot satisfy that need has increased. And uh, that is leading to a national consensus that Trump ought to win. And, and that is amazing, that it's congealing 11 months before an election. But it's not amazing when you consider the environment. If the war went away and um, there was no longer a danger of escalation, uh, then there would be the economy that would hold us up. But that would be a largely, and, and it obviously is still an issue, but it would have far less force than it does with the world falling apart as it is. And um, that is animating a tremendous Trump surge that is becoming evident in all of the polling. It's largely obscured because we're not looking at the presidential race. We're looking at the Middle East. We're looking at the hostages. We're looking at, the, at Hamas. But ultimately, the more the focus is on that, the more Trump's defects become incidental. They become trivial. People don't focus on them. And the more there is a transparent, clear need for strong leadership in this country. And it's obvious that Biden is incapable of providing that strong leadership. So um, it is not so much the actors in the play who have changed or even the script of the play. It's the backdrop. It's the scenery. It's the context within which this election is being held. And that context is a permanent reality that I think is terribly important. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And I'm wondering what it is I should do. Let's go to Vince in Brooklyn, please. Hi, Vince. Good morning, Dick. Uh, Dick, I uh, heard at the end of Judge Jeanine's show, and they were talking about the terrorist swap, basically three for one. I don't think it's a good deal. I heard other talk show hosts say it, uh, especially since Israel, the preponderance of the te- uh, people they're releasing are known terrorists. I think it should be, the- this is my opinion, one for one, one woman for one woman, one child for one child, 
One man for one man, and the way the numbers pan out, if if they're holding 339 hostage, Israeli hostages, that's what you get, 339 terrorists. Yeah. Because by Israel doing this, in my opinion, you're just perpetuating this because Hamas and those other dirtbags over there know that they're going to come out on the winning end of it because they're going to get more of what they want. They're going to get more people back yeah. for less Well, Israelis. but of course, this isn't the policy. This is the result of a negotiation. I'm sure that Netanyahu would start off agreeing with you, and this is what he had to do to get the hostages freed and get some of them alive. But the real problem with this deal is that it is distracting us from the original disaster and, and mini-holocaust that happened that caused this war in the first place. The issue of hostages is replacing that in the public's imagination, and it gives Hamas an opportunity to be civilized and act decent. It has a chance for Hamas to atone for its sins in killing 1,200 Israelis by releasing a few hostages that it kidnapped in the first place. The world is totally turned upside down. Uh, these were not prisoners in the traditional sense. They're people who were kidnapped by Hamas. And the fact that Hamas is releasing them is no testament to its humanity. It's a testament to its inhumanity. And the fact that the Israelis have to negotiate for the release of innocent civilians, including babies, uh, is a measure of how horrible and despicable and disgusting and dishonest Hamas is and the Palestinian state is. And uh, I can't stand as I sit here and watch it. And this crisis where Israel's life is at stake devolves into an issue of how many hostages are released on what day and who they were. I know there's a four-year-old baby in it. Isn't that cute? And, and, the, and the conditions they were in. And, and these are all peripheral issues that should not be dominant in our consciousness. And Hamas is manipulating the public relations war so it comes out ahead when it has live bodies that it can release. Um, the, uh, so I think it's disgusting. Let's go to Frank in the Highlands. Frankie. Yeah, hi. hi. Um, actually, I haven't ever talked to you before, but yeah. I think that you are so intelligent oh, and so on top of things. But I'm asking you to uh, let me converse with you to the point where uh, I do disagree with some things. Mm -hmm. But here's what here's what I'd like to say. All right. Um, I am for Israel and I love Israel and I am for the Jewish. Um, I am also um, elated that we have a pause for three or four days. Okay. And I have talked to many of my friends who are is Israeli. And here's, here's where I believe that we have Hamas and the real Hitlers, okay, of this um, negotiating. And uh, if they stop the pause, and they are the first to stop the pause, then we will go after these very rich and um, in Qatar. 
And okay. uh, so they don't want to die because they are living it up. I, I agree but, with you. But let me comment because I, I need to move on. I think that uh, the pause is, uh, is terrible. Uh, it's, it's, it's stopping the momentum of the war. Uh, you couldn't ask General Patton to pause on the verge of crossing the Rhine. Uh, when the enemy's in retreat and being dissolved, that's the time to strike. And if you wait until they recover, till they get their act together, till they get more aid, till they get more money, till they can get replacement troops, you're not going to just pick up where you left off. You're going to lose that time. And more importantly, the time that will have elapsed between the cause and the effect increases. The, the events of October, what day was it? October 6th, I think, become history, become faded in people's minds. And the idea that Hamas killed 1,200 Jewish men, women, and children, and babies, and beheaded babies, that fades. And all people are looking at is the war is going on, the violence is going on. And because Israel is winning the war and has to win the war, uh, they become more of the aggressors and they attract more criticism. And the momentum, the moral momentum, if you will, gets lost. And I think that's the ultimate tragedy of what's going on. The world is very biased against Jews. And this gives the world that a chance to exercise its bias and to bias in favor of those who've exploited and killed Jews the way the world has throughout history. So I think the pause is terrible. I think that there was no alternative but for Netanyahu to agree to it. The gradual nature of the pause, 10 every day, they have 300, so that's a month worth of releases, a month of no Israeli action. That is insufferable. We can't do that and permit the enemy to recover. It was a terrible deal. And the United States played a role in forcing that deal. Biden made Israel accept that deal because the specter of these hostages being held, uh, being held hostage was too much for the world to take. And the humanitarian crisis in Gaza caused by Hamas uh, redounded against Israel. And uh, the public relations war here was completely lost. Now, I want to go back to something that is, is ultimately of historical significance. Why was Mossad caught unawares? Why was this a surprise attack that succeeded with this vast intelligence network that the world has noted and largely admired? Why was Israel caught napping? Now, Israel won't, won't admit and shouldn't admit while the war is going on what failures of intelligence led to Hamas being able to succeed in infiltrating a large number of troops into Israel and, and massacring over 1,000 Jewish people. 
because we have to concentrate on winning the war. But while we're looking at that, let us who are outside of Israel focus on the broader question of why Mossad failed, why the Arabs were able to pull this off. So in thinking about that, I identified six other examples where competent and capable intelligence agencies failed to, to protect their own country. One was the German invasion of Russia that Stalin didn't see coming. He denied that it was happening, and when it took place, he was very slow to respond and ultimately really had a nervous breakdown, and it was months before he recovered his mind and was able to act decisively and proceed to win the war. The second was the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, where the Americans were completely convinced that the Viet Cong in North Vietnam had been defeated and no longer posed a significant threat. And they said that the war is at the end of the war is in sight. And then uh, the, the uh, communists attacked with devastating results, uh, taking over a number of cities. Eventually, we forced them back, and they ended up suffering huge casualties. But the surprise was complete. A third example was China entering the Korean War. Uh, originally, the Korean War was between North Korea and South Korea. North had invaded the South. And the United States rushed to the aid of the South and defeated the North and moved them far back out of North, out of North Korea, uh, ultimately the Yalu River, which was the border with China. And China kept saying, if you approach the Yalu River, we're going to cross the border and we are going to intervene in this war on the side of the North Vietnamese, the North Koreans. And uh, MacArthur, our general, dismissed that. He said that they don't have the capacity to do it. If they do it, we'll overwhelm them. Don't worry about it. And Korea and China did enter the war. They forced the American and South Korean troops all the way down, almost off the Korean Peninsula, almost pushed them into the sea. And then gradually, painstakingly, under General Ridgeway, we reconquered the territory so we ultimately forced the communists to the old ceasefire demarcation line that separated North and South Korea at the beginning. But we were, there was no question that we were, that we were deceived and, and, and let down by our intelligence. Third, fourth example is the Yom Kippur War in 1973. When, 1973, when... Uh, when on the most sacred of the Jewish holidays, Day of Atonement, uh, Sadat, who was, the, who was the president of Egypt, attacked Israel and took them completely by surprise. They were not expecting it, and they were completely badly defeated in the opening days of the war. Israel then recovered with significant American aid, and it ultimately reconquered all the territory that uh, that the Egyptians had conquered, but not before Israel was badly damaged. Another example is Pearl Harbor, where we were negotiating with the Japanese and did not anticipate an attack, even though we should have anticipated it, because we had embargoed oil shipments to Japan, and that left them no alternative but to go to war to get their oil back. And the government there was largely run by the Navy, that was blinded by the need for oil on which the ships ran, and that 
led us to discount the possibility of the major Japanese attack, and we lost 2,400 Americans. And then finally, the one that we all experienced in our lifetimes, 9-11, when we, uh, we knew that they had the capacity to do this with airlines. We had warning that it was possible, and uh, we even had some prisoners who told us they were planning this, and yet we took no precautions, no, uh, n- no effort to, to limit the damage, and 9-11 cost 3,000 American lives. So those are intelligence failures. That is when the spy agencies completely screwed up and completely lost track and lost control over events. Let's look at them and let's see what were the common denominators that led to that problem. The first one, I think, is wishful thinking. Uh, we were convinced that the that um, al-Qaeda couldn't pull off 9-11, the Japanese couldn't pull off Pearl Harbor, the Israelis could not be defeated by the Egyptians, that China would not enter the Korean War, that the Viet Cong was finished and couldn't go to the offensive, and that Hitler would not invade Russia because it was too big a piece to chew. And those misconceptions guided our intelligence, and we didn't uh, prepare in the way that we should have. We need to bear that in mind whenever we have a situation like this again. I think the second thing was misperceptions of the enemy prospects. We believed that that there was no doubt that the 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 we believed there was no doubt that Israel would defeat uh, the Egyptians. We believed there was no doubt that we would defeat the Japanese. We believed there was no doubt that we would defeat the terrorists. And we did in all cases. But it took a long time and it was clear that we had way underestimated the power of our enemies. The next cause, I think, is that we believed our own intelligence. We believed our capacity to gather information. And when our intelligence did not indicate this thing was impending, we were shocked. We were just totally caught unawares, and we refused to believe it at first. So the intelligence community creates the, the preconditions for failure by leading us to believe in it and believing that it's infallible. And it's obviously fallible. And I think as our intelligence community grows in the U.S. to five or six or seven agencies involving tens and tens, I mean hundreds of thousands, millions of people, workers and leaders, we tend to trust it. And when we trust it, we tend to relax our vigilance and bad things begin to happen. The last cause, I think, is a little bit more abstruse. Certain elements in our society were hoping for failure in these instances. I believe that Franklin Roosevelt, for example, was determined to enter World War II. And he knew that the only way he could get in was if there was a Japanese surprise attack on America. Now, we didn't envisage half of our Navy being wiped out and our leading Pacific base being decimated. But he did envisage an attack, and he imposed an oil embargo on Japan that probably left them with no alternative but to do that. So they were sort of hoping in some ways that this took place. And I think in the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the, there was an undermining of American will in that war by the peace movement in which I participated 
and the Tet Offensive was not entirely unwelcome, and it led to America's withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, Nixon got elected, Johnson defeated largely because of the Tet Offensive, and Nixon immediately began to pull out of Vietnam. So there was part of us that wanted that to happen. So let me know your thoughts. What do you think about that? What do you think are the lessons that we need to learn from this? So let me know. In the meantime, let's go to Tony in Clifton. Hi, Tony. Hi, my friend, Dick Morris. You are, like, so phenomenal. And I'm so glad you did your intro on the topic of intelligence and lack thereof. (laughs) Remember what Patton Moynihan said. He said, never confuse intelligence with intelligence. (laughs) So one of my favorite presidents is, is George Washington, who they say was honest, but his spy ring was just amazing. And so... Here in this election, as we look at President what was Trump, amazing? his his spy ring, he had spy, the spy ring, ring yes. right. that helped him really get through a lot of uh, war um, sort of scruples that would have been lost if he didn't have that connection. Yeah. But for President Trump, what this means to me is that there's a lot of truth telling, Dick, that has to be done about what's been happening, what's been intentional, not intentional. Even just looking at the anniversary of JFK's passing and the truth of that, I think America is looking for someone who's as smart and intelligent as President Trump. And that other quality is the honesty to explain what's been happening in the past two years. And yes. I think he's the man who could do it. Yes, I agree with that so much. I was very disappointed when Trump did not open the Kennedy assassination files uh, as president. He had promised to. And when he actually looked at them, he released about 90 percent of them. But the intelligence people said this this other stuff he can't release because it would so hurt America and hurt our global standing that we can't release that. And Trump bowed to that. I think he's indicated in this campaign that he would reverse that decision if he were elected, and I trust that he will. But, and you're completely right that all of this goes back to the Kennedy assassination. The Kennedy assassination was the first time the deep state surfaced its surface and rose its head in the United States, and we understood just how deep it ran and just how thoroughly it had captured our government. And, uh, the assassination of John Kennedy, largely by the CIA, largely with the CIA's approval and funding and encouragement, all revealed in a book called Unspeakable by James Douglas that came out in 2010, that documents that what was going on was that Chris Jevin Kennedy, after the Cuban Missile Crisis, had moved closer together and that they were talking about ending the Cold War. And the military-industrial complex couldn't handle that. It would be much too great a loss of revenue. And apart from the economic motivation, our anti-communism was a religious fervor, believing that we're expunging atheist communism from the world. And we saw it about the way we see cancer treatment now as an evil, and we have to kill some good cells to kill the cancer, but it certainly is worth it. And... That was their attitude, and they assassinated Kennedy because they were afraid that he was going to surrender in the Cold War. So I think that that metaphor you cite, Tony, is completely applicable. This is The Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. 
Ever since Biden required all military to get COVID shots, a ridiculous, stupid, unbelievably counterproductive decision, he has forced uh, the discharge of 8,300 needed American soldiers who are basically fired, not because they're ill, not because they're infectious, but because they refuse to take a vaccine. This is the Dick Morris Show, sponsored by the Patriot Gold Group with my sidekick, consigliere, best friend and advisor, Doug DePiro. Uh, not here, but will be back with us next week, I trust. Um, this was this decision to fire these soldiers uh, was inexplicable. Young people were not subject to COVID uh, if they had immune deficiencies or other preconditions, they were probably screened out and would not be in the armed forces in the first place. And uh, to take 8,300 physically fit young men and women who were patriotic and had enlisted, there was no draft, had enlisted to protect America and firing them over this was outrageous. It was unbelievable. And it contrasts very sharply with the spirit that animated America uh, over the over the last over the, that should have animated America during the this period. What silver wings on my son's chest make him one of America's best? He'll be a man. They'll test one day. Have him win. So that was the pre-anti-war song. <laughs> that song came out in 1962 and 63 and 64 when we all still believed what America was telling us about the Vietnam War and about the Kennedy assassination and about the deep state. And we've grown up a lot since then. And we've come to understand the truth about those situations. But the military recruitment is now off and we're only 25, we're 25% below the goal we've established for the military. We have, we have 33,000 troops weaker than we were in 2021, 33,000. And that includes 8,300 who were discharged because they didn't get shots, shots that they would never have uh, gotten, shots that would never have, uh, that, that had they not gotten would not have, contributed to abating the disease. They weren't subject to it much in the first place. And this wanton act in destroying and compromising our integrity and our military strength is, is incredible and just stands there. And look at the world we, we're in. Um, look at the threats we face from China. Look at the threats we face from Russia. Look at the Ukraine war. Look at North Korea testing weapons, nuclear weapons. Look at the, beast, the bestiality of Hamas and the situation we're facing there and tell me we discharged 8,000 American troops because they wouldn't get a freaking vaccine against a disease that they were largely not subject to. 
there was never an outbreak that originated with the military. And I believe there was never a real decision to require them to get shots. I think they were just telling everybody to get shots, and they got swept up in that. And the Carter, who never valued our, I'm sorry, Biden, who never valued our security very highly, let this take place. And it's an absolute disgrace that that happened. And we're paying the price for it now, and hopefully we can replenish it. Now, where is this leading? Well, in history, it was clear that the draft was not necessary to get a full-strength American military. We did not have to have the draft. We had the draft because we didn't want to pay our soldiers much and was a budget-cutting measure, and it kindled massive opposition to the war. It sent a lot of people into combat that didn't want to be there, and it even made a virtue of it. So it was the stupidest thing you can imagine. And when Nixon first cut the draft and then ended the draft, opposition to the war tended to collapse, and it no longer was a cutting-edge issue in American politics. Uh, but the, but I believe that the decrease of American military personnel now is not because of a financial issue. It's because of, of a morale issue. It's because Americans are demeaning our military. They're thinking that we're the bad guys, that we're doing evil. The spirit of, of, of compromise and, and, uh, and is being lost. Uh, there is no strength. There is no belief in that strength protects us. There's simply belief that strength leads to evil and leads to overreach. And uh, that's what's going on. And then every social experiment you can imagine is being foisted on the military. Uh, what do we think of transgender people? Well, bring them into the military and let's see if they can assimilate. Uh, what do we think about gay marriage? Well, allow it in the military and see what gives. Uh, what do we think about critical race theory? What do we think about uh, about gender change? Try it out in the military. We have a military that's become essentially one million guinea pigs that the, military, that the establishment and the social conscience of the liberals can manipulate into vindicating their ideology. And it's very clear in showing up in the lack of recruitment. We see the same phenomenon in New York City in the tremendous lack of recruitment in our police force and the retirement of large numbers of very good cops who just can't take the regulations anymore. I listened to a news broadcast on this station <clears throat> five minutes ago, or an hour ago, that said that we will fall from the previous total of about 35,000 police officers to perhaps 25,000 in the next 15 years, 10 or 15 years. And public safety will be horribly compromised as a result. And the demeaning of cops, the demeaning of soldiers, the social experimentation in the military, the um, desire to take every recent social theory and see how it would do on the military is compromising the strength and the viability of our recruitment into the military, the retention of good police officers, and the recruitment into the police force. And it is just unbelievably awful.
Let's go to John in New Jersey. Hi, John. Mr. Morris, always an honor to speak with you. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for you. Are Democrats so scared of losing New York State that they're going to take Adams out and replace him with Jumaane Williams so a full steal of New York State can be implemented? Long Island is almost as big as New York City. It's 7.6 million versus 7.8 million. And Long Island was flipped red for the first time in a long no, time. No, that's not and true. That's not true. Done Long Island is about, it's about 4 million. New York is, City is about... Eight and a half million, but go ahead. Uh, I actually just looked those stats up before I got on the phone with you, but I'll take your word for it. Do you, do you think that is part of the motivation for taking Eric Adams out? I hadn't thought about that. I think that's entirely possible. Let's just go back into the background of Adams' election. He won with a plurality of votes, but not a majority. And it was clear that the consensus of the voters was that they wanted someone way to the left of him. And the Black Lives Matter movement influenced the election and led to the election of a, of a mayor who was considerably to the left of what the, of what the militants and the racists wanted. So he began his tenure under a bit of a cloud. Now, is the Democratic Party taking him out? That's an interesting question. Um, Jamal Williams, the the man who would succeed him, he's the head of the New York City Council, uh, is, uh, is way to the left of Adams and way to the left of where New Yorkers want to be. And um, he's really a throwback to de Blasio. I think we learned our lesson with de Blasio that we can't absolutely dismantle our protections against crime and if we try, it'll surge. And it's tragic that New Yorkers may not have learned that lesson. But it's quite possible that that's the case. Now, in terms of New York State, yeah, there's a damn good chance that Trump will win New York State. Uh, he had, the Republicans have dominated Nassau and Suffolk to the point where there is no countywide elected official in either county who is a Democrat. And that's gone from the days when the Democrats ran those counties. And upstate New York is shifting even more dramatically to the Republicans. And even in New York City, the black and Latino vote is moving Republican. Uh, In 2020, Trump received 12% of the African-American vote. Now the polling has him at 27. And in 2020, Trump got 26% of the Latino vote. And now the polling has him at 39%. So, yeah, New York State is shifting, and it's entirely possible that Trump wins New York State. Thank the Lord. Let's go to Sandra in New Jersey. Hi, Sandra. Good to hear from you. Oh, good good morning. Good afternoon, uh, Dick. Yes. Um, you know, I was watching your show last night, and I was very um, surprised to learn that the inmates can get, I think you said, free surgery, you know, transgender surgeries. Now, I understand. That's in California, that in- but, yeah, you're right. So, so normally you have to have insurance and Medicaid care yeah. would pay for some of it. So are you saying, because I want to understand this. So in California, are you saying that if they have no insurance and if it's medically rendered that they can have the surgery, they're going to get it for free? Yes, I am. Uh, <clears throat> this part of a, of a program in California to facilitate gender change and to be uh, positive about that. And, uh, it's there are a variety of treatments that are being made available 
to inmates, the most extreme of which is gender change. And there have been about about 500 examples of gender change in the California prisons paid for by the state. But there are 60 or 70,000 men who've had therapy to help them become women, Uh, breast augmentation, uh, a variety of, of things like that, hormonal therapy that has been given to them for free in California prisons. And it's part of this insane proselytizing. It's part of this this unbelievable attempt to merge the genders. And uh, I think it's it's reaching its apogee. It's uh, actually, it's, it's nadir in California where we see this happening. It's beyond belief. And the state is helping it. Uh, you know, in California, you are not permitted, if you're a teacher, to reveal the fact that some of your students are undergoing gender change. You cannot tell the parents. You're barred from that. The right of open disclosure trumps the right of parents to be sovereign over their own families. This is just crazy. And I believe it's very important in the Democrats losing black voters and Latino voters because nowhere is it more apparent than in this situation. Thanks for calling, Sandra. It's great to hear from you. This is New York's talk leader, the crown jewel of talk radio, WABC New York and 1071 WLIR Hampton Bays. 77 WABC News starts now. 47 cloudy on this Sunday, November 26th. Good afternoon. I'm Noam Layden. Hamas has released the first of the 10 American hostages they have held captive since October 7th. Four-year-old Abigail Idan being checked out by doctors in Israel at this hour. She was grabbed by Hamas terrorists after they killed both of her parents in front of her. President Biden celebrating the news that Abigail is free. Thank God she's home. The little, I just can't imagine the enjoyment in the... I, I just, I wish I were there to hold her. Abigail among 17 hostages who were released this afternoon. Israel freed 39 Palestinian prisoners as part of their agreement with Hamas. President Biden says he does not know how many more Americans will be released during this pause in the Israel-Hamas war. We are hopeful, but I don't have anything firmly to tell you at this moment. The deal calls for, for every for every 10 hostages released to extend another day. So I'm hopeful this is not the end. No word on the condition of those hostages handed over to Israel this afternoon. Long Island Congressman George Santos says he expects he could be expelled from Congress as early as this week. House Ethics Committee Chairman Michael Guest has introduced a resolution to expel Santos after the committee released a report claiming he violated federal laws. Santos has since been hit with dozens of charges, including wire fraud and money laundering, all of which he denies. On social media, Santos wrote he knows he's going to be ousted when the resolution goes to the floor, but he went on to say that he would wear the expulsion like a badge of honor. I'm Chris Caraggio. GOP presidential hopeful Chris Christie going on the attack again today against former President Donald Trump. He says Trump's rhetoric has fueled hatred towards Jews and Muslims. When you show intolerance towards everyone, you give permission as a leader 
for others to have their intolerance come out. The former New Jersey governor also going after college and university administrators who he says are not standing up to the anti-Jewish rallies on their campuses. This is the last Sunday many libraries across the city will be open. It comes as part of a 5% across the board city hall budget cut, which impacts at least eight branches across the city. WABC Sports Giants hosting the Patriots out at MetLife Stadium this afternoon. The Knicks, they take on the Suns at MSG. And the Nets, they host the Bulls tonight at the Barclays Center. Your forecast from the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center. Clouds this afternoon. Going to see some pop-up showers. The high 52 tonight overnight. That rain, it hangs around. Low 46. And then back to work Monday, sunny. High 51. It is 47 and cloudy outside our Midtown studios right now. I'm Noam Layden. Remember the news. It never stops at WABCRadio.com. It's Sunday, and you know what that means. And this is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group. Here's Dick Morris on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. Hi, this is the Dick Morris Show. This is Dick Morris, sponsored by Patriot Gold Group. You know, this is the first show I think I've ever done without Doug next to me, or at least remote. He he had a conflict that made it impossible for him to be on today. And, you know, I, I, I miss him. Um, you never know what you got until you miss it. And uh, he's he gives this show a wonderful temp, a wonderful tone to it because what he does, I think, is that he tries to put himself in the position of the average listener and to listen to the show and when there's something he doesn't get or doesn't understand or wants to have amplified, he tells me. And so he's like an at-large caller and uh, ex officio, and uh, I find that very helpful. And I think his contributions, I think his his smarts, his street smarts, his savvy, and increasingly his political sophistication, because we've been doing a lot of campaigns together and working together, and uh, and it's it's been a really wonderful partnership. Um, I in particular like working for Trump with him, uh, because he... He provides a reality, a sounding board, and Trump likes him a great deal, and I like him a great deal too, and I'm looking forward to his coming back. Now, the Democrats are trying to attach conditions to aid to Israel. They're saying that we want Israel to agree to certain conditions before we'll vote aid to them. So will you still love me tomorrow? That's the question Israel has to ask, and dependent on that answer is the fate of Israel, of the 7 million people who live there, and of the international Jewish community as well. Now, Bernie Sanders is the kind of friend we don't need. 
uh, with friends like him, you don't need enemies. Uh, he wants Israel to agree to six conditions. I'm, I'm not just he, but the six conditions, but AOC as well. And the six conditions are, one, end indiscriminate bombing in Gaza that's resulted in the deaths of thousands of civilians. Okay, but how about Gaza doing indiscriminate bombing of Jews with rockets that they launch that either hit Jewish cities or are stopped by the Iron Dome, but the intent is to kill civilians. So why must Israel stop uh, because it might endanger civilians while Hamas is killing them? They want a significant pause in Israeli military operations to allow for delivery of humanitarian aid. Now, I do not believe there is such a thing as humanitarian aid. I think it's all a ruse. I think it's a hoax. I think it's a charade. Um, they have they showed all these empty fuel trucks stacked up on the Israeli border, just waiting to go in to relieve the people of Gaza. How many terrorists were hiding inside them? How many weapons did they have? And as this goes on over the next thirty days, as it will in the hostage release scenario, you can bet that more and more this program will be infiltrated by weapons and uh, and manpower intended to reinforce Hamas. Uh, the saying that they can't, they, they, none of this can be used for anything, for any military purpose. But that's so absurd. When we had an oil embargo against Iraq, uh, and we, and then they went, Saddam went crazy and said, your, our people are dying because of your embargo, and they persuaded the soft-headed and soft-hearted UN officials to agree to provide oil, to allow oil in return for humanitarian action, for humanitarian relief. And it turned out that Kofi Amin, the Secretary General of the UN, had his son in on the deal, and he was receiving a cut of the money that went to, uh, that went to Iraq, uh, allegedly for relief. And the Oil for Peace program, the Oil for Food program, turned out to be totally corrupt, and there's every basis for believing that's what's going to happen in Gaza. <clears throat> they, they want the affirmation that displaced Gazan families will retain the right to return to their homes. Well, displaced? Displaced by who? Displaced by a war that Hamas started? Displaced by a war of aggression that Hamas started? And they want to make sure that when it's over, everybody's going to play nice and nobody will sacrifice anything? That's BS. And, and these conditions are just incredible. They want assurances that Israel will neither continue its blockade on Gaza nor occupy the region long term when hostilities end. Well, why the hell should they? Uh, until Hamas, until the Gaza Strip proves that it's pacified and proves that it's no longer a basis of offensive operations, Israel needs to continue that blockade and needs to occupy the region long term and needs to make sure that this outrageous militarization of an area that was allegedly pacified uh, will not continue. Remember, the Gaza Strip was, Israel owned the Gaza Strip. They conquered it in 1967. And then, as a result of negotiations with the U.S. orchestrated by Henry Kissinger, the Israelis agreed to withdraw from Gaza, take their settlers and move them home, end the Israeli settlements in Gaza, 
end the Israeli occupation and let Gaza become a democracy. Well, they did, and the next year, Hamas overthrew the democratically elected government and imposed a terrorist dictatorship in in Gaza. So why should Israel trust this? Why should Israel disarm? They want a prohibition on the expansion of Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Well, I think Israel has realized that the only way it can be secure is to, is to, is to have settlements in areas nominally allocated to the Arabs so that they can become a part of Israel and protect it. The idea that these settlements are imperialistic or that they're like an empire is just outrageous. <clears throat> and, uh, and Israel should not have to stop its settlements. And then they want a commitment to earnest peace talks designed to clinch an elusive two-state solution. Two-state solution? This is like one hand clapping. One party in this conflict, Israel, is dedicated to peace, wants to be left alone, and wants to be free to develop itself. The other party to it, the Palestinians, want to eliminate Israel, kill all the Jews, in their words, from the Jordan River to the sea, wipe the country out, exterminate the six million people that live there, six million Jews, seven million Jews, and we're supposed to go to a two-state solution? You can't have one hand clapping. It takes two to make peace, and there is no partner for peace when the, with the Israelis. There is no partner that can do it. There was Yasser Arafat, but he was thrown out, largely because he moved toward peace. And there is no voice in the Arab world that wants peace. They all are subservient to the Hamas agenda, and Israel cannot and should not give in to that. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you, and I'm wondering what it is I should do. So, there has been a big break in the Trump election issues and uh, the the issue of whether the 2000 election, 2020 election was stolen. And that came in Georgia, uh, which is an odd setting for it. U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg in uh, Georgia, in uh, in Fulton County, has ordered that there be a trial on January 9th with non-jury trial, a bench trial, to examine whether the voting machines in Georgia could be rigged or infiltrated and whether they presented a danger to having secure elections. In other words, basically testing with Trump's attacks on the system are warranted or not. This is the first, will will be the first judicial determination of the validity of the claim that Trump makes that this election was stolen and was rigged. And it's 
terribly important. The lawsuit questions whether Georgia's current system of computerized voting is safe or whether it's vulnerable to potential hacking incidents. The lawsuit was originally filed by activists in Georgia who want the state to use paper ballots instead of electronic voting machines. The judge said the material facts are in dispute and that that would require a trial, and the judge has scheduled a trial for January 9th. The specific incident that that caused this was a security breach in Coffee County in Georgia that was recorded on a surveillance video that showed unauthorized individuals scanning and copying secure voting software and distributing some of this information online. The judge wrote that the 2021 Coffee County election equipment breach presents a substantial risk that votes will not be counted as cast. And she notes that defendants, the state, failed to identify a single cybersecurity expert who endorses the current configuration of Georgia's ballot marking system. So what a victory for Trump. What a vindication of his claim that this election could have been hacked and was hacked. Now, Totenberg warned of all of this before this case came out, before the 2020 elections were held. She warned that the system could be hacked, and she wanted she wanted safeguards. Her decision was ignored. The safeguards were not implemented, and the consequence was, I believe, that the election was stolen. We're looking at Trump gains in each of these states, but to a certain extent, they're not gains. They're just affirming what the real result was in 2020, and the polls find what people believe and what they believed then. And I believe that honest polls taken in these swing states would have shown Trump winning them back in 2020. And I know that because I conducted those polls with John McLaughlin. In the two or three days before the 2020 election, uh, John conducted a series of polls with me of 1,000 interviews per night for three nights in um, Michigan and Pennsylvania, and it was to see if we would win those states. And all of the polls, there were five total over five nights in two states. Trump won every single one of them. By narrow margins, half a point, one point, one and a half points, but he won them. And with that sample size over that period of time, it was very, very unlikely that the results would be at variance with that. So when the results came in, Trump knew about this polling, I had told him about the polling, and we were confident of carrying those states. And the early indications were that we had before they really stuffed the ballot boxes. And, uh, and there was the pause in counting in Georgia. There was an overnight pause in Pennsylvania. There was another pause in Michigan where hundreds of th- tens of thousands of ballots were delivered by truck. And after the polls closed long after, a day later. And I believe that those were all examples of fraud. Now, why didn't we win in court? Because there is a fundamental fact, which is all of the votes are secret ballot. So we could argue, and Giuliani successfully did, that many of the votes in Arizona and Georgia in particular were illegal. They were cast illegally by people who did not have the right to vote. 
and that the number of illegal votes exceeded Trump's margin, exceeded Biden's margin in each of those states. But we couldn't get the election flipped because it was a secret ballot, and we had no way of knowing who those people voted for. If they all voted for Trump, uh, there would be no basis for throwing out the election. Now, in Pennsylvania and a couple of other states, there was a system where the ballot would have a cover sheet and there'd be a ballot under it. And the ballot would show who they voted for and the cover sheet would show who they were. So we went through the ballots in Pennsylvania in particular and found tens of thousands of people that should not have voted. But we had no idea who they voted for because contrary to state law, when the elector, when the inspectors received the ballots, they ripped off the top page and separated it from the page where the ballots were contained. And that eliminated the possibility of being sure there was an honest election. And now finally, the judicial system is catching up with it, as it often does. And kudos to Judge Stoltenberg. The federal courts took the position that, hey, elections are run by the states. We're not getting in the middle of this. And they were burned by Bush v. Gore in 2000. The Supreme Court lost a lot of its prestige when that decision was decided 7-2 along party lines in favor of Bush. So they're very skittish about getting involved in 2020. And the state courts were controlled by Democrats who refused to do the step they needed to do which is to appoint special masters with subpoena power to go in and audit the results in detail and come to a conclusion as to whether the election was honest or not. And they didn't do that then. They wouldn't do it in Arizona in 22 when um, when Katie Hobbs was elected governor. Uh, and these, these disparities have never been adjudicated. There's never been a fair court hearing about them. And this Georgia case represents the first one. And I'm so looking forward to the trial on January 9th when we're going to see bit by bit how the Georgia election system could be penetrated. Now, just a little background on the Georgia election system. Georgia originally was all paper ballots. And then the governor, Brian Kemp, was the secretary of state in charge of the elections. And he said, I want to bring in an automated voting system, not for fraud, just because he thought it made sense. And I don't know if there was some money that changed hands there, but he brought in this voting system. And um, the, the, the people in Georgia sued to stop this voting system. And the plaintiff was none other than, uh, than the, uh, the, the woman who... I'm, I'm sorry, blocking on her name, the woman who led the challenges in Georgia, the black leader. And she said that paper ballots were the only way to get an honest voting count. And, uh, and her case was rejected. And a big part of that was that Kemp was invested personally, politically, and maybe financially in the new voting system that they brought in. And uh, he refused to listen to any argument that it could be flawed despite the obvious fact that there were tests that showed that it could be flawed. Now we're finally going to get an honest adjudication of this. The need is obvious. We should stop using voting machines anywhere in the United States. 
do paper ballots. France does all paper ballots, and there's no delay in certifying the results, and their population is a quarter of our population. And um, the idea that we are trusting our integrity to voting machines that could be hacked uh, is, is just something that is terrible and we shouldn't do. And thank goodness there's now going to be an adjudication of this. Let's go to Phil and Yonkers. Hi, Phil. Hey, Phil. Phil? Phil is my old Yankee fan associate. Yes. Hey, how you doing, Phil? Yeah. Okay. I had a couple of things, and the one thing, this transgender thing is, is really gotten out of control. And my point is that at 12 years of age, does a child really have the capacity to consent to such a involved and lifelong process? And irreversible. Irreversible. Irreversible, right. And in, in 95, there was something similar with HIV that they changed the New York Public Health Law, uh, Article 27F, that you could get an HIV test under 16 only if you could demonstrate the capacity to consent. You had to know what HIV was, what the clinical endpoint age was, and what a positive test meant before you could actually get tested. I didn't know and that. I don't think that they're doing anything like that with these children. Yeah, they're not. And they're, it's a, it, it, there's a lot of things that to, could contribute to someone's gender identity. It doesn't necessarily mean they're transgender. Right. Well, and, I think and, that's, and it's just, I think that's a key point. I think you're so right. And it is such a shame that a movement that is fundamentally an important one that permits people to ally their personal preferences with their biological makeup uh, is stigmatized because of gender change that's done in secret, done with underage children, done irreversibly. And by the way, even if it's reversible, it stops most uh, girls who have it from getting pregnant. Uh, over Not most, over almost a half. And the, uh, the danger of that is so high, and yet these children are taking, getting the surgery. Uh, largely because of peer pressure. And it's outrageous that we're letting that happen. Thanks, Phil. It's a, you only call during the off-season, though. <laughs> Phil? Yes. Yeah, you only call during the off-season. Otherwise, you're watching the Yankee game, huh? That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but I am always watching the Yankees. That Thank part you. is true. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, uh, let's go to Paula in... Uh, in New Jersey. Yes, uh, good, uh, good afternoon, Mr. Morris. I love your show. Thank you. um, I, 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 on the topic that you were just talking about, um, I just want to pose something to you. Okay, there's these um, mail-in ballots that we have a controversy about that came in the middle of the night. Yes. Now, um, the automatic signature verification system, okay, um, can we test to see if they would, uh, would if they would verify uh, ballots that have or had uh, auto pen signatures? Right. Because if they did, then that would uh, be a uh, total deniability yep. of the um, 
validation of this election? Very good question, very intelligent one. Um, the issue here is mainly that the state governments that are largely run by Democrats have resisted any real audit of these uh, of these mail-in ballots and any real signature comparison. When Stacey Abrams, the name I was groping for before, brought a lawsuit in Georgia because she lost the election of 1989 of 2018 in Georgia for governor. Uh, she sued because she said that a lot of ballots were thrown out, a lot of voters were stopped from voting. And she won, and the state agreed to suspend its signature verification. Uh, it, would, it would switch it to two, two verifications before one could be thrown out. And the procedure they adopted was one where when the ballot looked like it was not a valid signature, an election inspector would go to the home and give the voter an opportunity to, quote, cure the ballot, unquote. And these were Democratic partisans who would go to somebody's home and say, didn't you mean to vote for Biden in this ballot? That wasn't the stray marking by Trump's name, not your intention. So the signature verification became corrupted and was never pursued properly. That's a big part of Rudy Giuliani's case. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's outrageous that that happened. But there is an answer. I think you can have mail-in ballots, and I think you can tally them accurately. But I think that you should require the last four digits of the Social Security number to be on the ballot so that the you know who's casting it, you know who the voter is, and you can attest to the fact that they ought to be allowed to vote on the platform, the lawsuit said. Media Matters then followed a small subset of users consisting entirely of accounts in one of two categories, those known to ex produce extreme fringe content and accounts owned by X's big-name advertisers. The end result was a feed precision designed by Media Matters for a single purpose, to produce side-by-side -side ad placement content so that it could be screenshot in an effort to alienate advertisers. So Media Matters therefore resorted to endlessly scrolling and refreshing its unrepresentative hand-selected feed, generating 13 to 15 times more advertisements per hour than the average viewer. And so it, they flooded the X network, the Twitter network, with phony ads that were white supremacist and neo-Nazi and juxtaposed that with legitimate content posted by X. And they are using and they use this to try to induce advertisers not to advertise on X or hold their money back because they were duped into believing that this was uh, fueling and funding neo-Nazi and white supremacist contact. This, this, tech, this move has been going on for, year, for months and months now, perhaps more than a year. And finally, Elon Musk's lawsuit is drawing attention to it and will probably result in requiring them to stop that. But that's how the myth develops that conservatives are neo-Nazi and white supremacists. Uh, in fact, white supremacists and neo-Nazis are a tiny, tiny proportion of the American people. You can't find any. They exist mainly in the imaginations of the left, and they're conjured up to try to scare 
the black vote and the Jewish vote back into line for the Democratic Party. And at last, Leon, Leon, at last Musk has drawn the line and said, we're going to stop this. Now, I have some good news here. Dr. Trump, Dr. Trump, Donald Trump's doctor conducted an exam of Trump and found his exceptional cognitive results and exceptional physical results, quite in contrast to Biden's lack of mental acuity. Former President Donald Trump received a clean bill of health on Monday from his doctor who asserted that the former president had made notable strides in improving his physical condition and did particularly well on his cognitive exams. The doctor wrote, I've been President Donald J. Trump's personal physician since 21. During this time, I've conducted several comprehensive examinations, the most recent being September 12, 23 and have supervised consultant specialist consultations along with ancillary testing and screening and preventative health maintenance. I'm pleased to report that President Trump's overall health is excellent. His physical exams are well within the normal range, and his cognitive exams were exceptional. In addition, his most recent lab analysis remains well within normal limits and is even more favorable than prior testing in some of the most significant parameters, most likely secondary to his weight reduction. Trump has reduced his weight through an improved diet and continued daily exercise, chasing around the courts. <laughs> While maintaining a rigorous schedule, it's my opinion that President Trump is currently in excellent health, and with his continued interest in preventative health monitoring and maintenance, he will continue to enjoy an active, healthy lifestyle for years to come. Now, that's the test that Biden refuses to take, the cognitive test. And he won't release the results. He won't even agree to be tested. And it's so obvious when you look at the two men and you compare how they act in public that there is this enormous difference between them. And God bless you, President Trump, for helping to lead us out of the mess that we're in now. Let's go to Christine in Connecticut. Hi, Christine. Hi, Mr. Morris. I happen to be a transsexual woman. Good for you. And I can't stand what's happening with this gender ideology movement. Can they leave children alone? I'm a spokesperson for Moms for Liberty, Hartford County. I've testified at the Connecticut State Lobby Day at the Legislative Office Building. We're trying to put legislation in to... um, and binary age transition for kids and to keep social emotional learning out of the school curriculum. And you oppose that? Well, we got to leave the children alone. This is life altering yeah. medication. I don't buy the fact that they're dysphoric. If you don't go through your natural puberty, how can you be dysphoric? But this is being force fed on our children. That's, I so appreciate you calling in, Christine. First time I've spoken to somebody who's actually been through the process. And it's heartening to see that you believe that it can happen and should happen for adults who want it, but not be imposed on children 
who even if they wanted are incapable of making that decision. God bless you, and thank you for calling. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. That took courage, folks, and bless Christine for doing that. Wow. Pretty important day on the air. Let's go to Lou in Five Towns. Hi, Lou. Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call, uh, Mr. Morris. Um, you know, around town in my political discussions, so to speak, in the coffee houses where, where I go, there's always that one word that's concerned. And that's Michelle Obama. Now, with that said, and I, I'm a person, I'm just so tired of it. But I really always ask myself, and I want to ask you. With that said, what would be the political strategy, or would the political political strategy change for President Trump if she threw her hat into the ring, and if so, how? Well, good question. Uh, first, I don't think she's going to run. Because there are no signs that she is. There's no, there's not been an outbreak of portraits of her and magazine stories about her. And usually, when you're going to jump into a race, you prepare the way that way. But I'm not afraid of her running. If Michelle runs, she's going to have to run a gauntlet of answering charges that have accumulated about extreme anti-white racism. Um. The day is so different than it was in 2008 and 2012 when Barack Obama was elected and we were all proud of the end of racism in our society, or so it seemed. But since then, we've had critical race theory saying that all whites are racist, that the only reason whites have succeeded is because they suppressed blacks and every white success story is based on the exploitation of black people and affirmative action has been defended as something that's going to give blacks preference over whites, uh, even when the merits would go the other way. And Michelle Obama is going to have to deal with that. Uh, the demand of the black community for reparations for slavery, that their great, 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 eight, eight greats, grandfathers may have endured, and they're supposed to be compensated for it with a quarter of a million dollars each. Uh, these are policies and these are ideas that are very at variance with the mainstream of the American people. Barack Obama didn't advocate it when he was president. Michelle Obama didn't do it. But now the black community is going to force them to embrace it as a condition of getting the nomination. If they don't, they won't get a black turnout. They won't get strong enthusiasm. And it's going to be very clear that they are going to have to toe that line. And I think it's understanding that is stopping Barack from encouraging her to run because I think that would destroy his reputation. I think she'd lose, and I think that he's not anxious to see that take place. This is the Dick Morris Show, presented by the Patriot Gold Group on 77 WABC. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am stuck in the middle with you. Did you hear that news story just a moment ago? The head of the teachers' union is saying that there is no financial shortage. There is no need for budget cuts in New York City. We can assimilate close to a million new people who have no home, no job, and no income. 
many of whom, most of whom are living on the streets. And it's not going to affect our budget. It's not going to affect our police manning. It's not going to affect our schools. It's not going to affect our health care. It's fanciful to say that it is. What kind of baloney is that? You can't just expand the population of New York from 8.5 million to 9 or 9.5 million. Have those be poor people who need to be taken care of, who need custodial services, and not impact the city budget. And for the teachers' union to say that they're opposed to that or that, uh, or that this is fanciful, that this is an imagined crisis, is just outrageous. It's totally outrageous. Now, in, when, in Trump's case, indeed, where he's being sued for trying to deny the election, something that is not a crime, uh, and it's not a crime to say you won the election, it's not a crime to say the election was rigged, it's not a crime to say that the ballots were miscounted, but they're trying to make it a crime by prosecuting Trump for this and saying that he was destabilizing our society and was an act of trying to overthrow the government. Well, Trump justifiably howled at that and said that this was just outrageous. And now a three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals hinted that it may limit the scope of the gag order against Trump by the judge overseeing his indictment on conspiracy charges. But Judge Patricia Millett, who sits on the three-judge court that's taking the appeal, for instance, expressed concerns that the order would effectively prevent Trump from discussing a pertinent issue during the 2024 campaign. Here's what the judge said. He has to speak mismanners while everyone else is throwing targets at him. It would really be hard in a debate when everyone else is going at, is going at your full bore. Your attorneys would have to be scripted the little things you could say. And another judge said that the testimony of prominent government officials would not be affected in any way by the public criticism of them by Trump. While the judges expect skepticism about the gag order, Judge Millett hinted that the court may opt to limit its scope rather than eliminate it outright, saying the court needs to use a careful scalpel here. What needs to do is throw the case out. But to gag the president, former president, running for president, the front runner in all of the polls, and he's not allowed to talk about something that's going on that's center stage in dominating American media is just unbelievable. And that and thank God an appeals court is a with saner perspective is looking at it. If Trump attacks the prosecutor, if Trump attacks the prosecutor's staff, if Trump attacks the evidence being brought in against him, that's his right. That's part of what a trial is all about. If he can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. If why would you bring an indictment against somebody and then gag them when they're trying to defend themselves? And to pretend that this indictment cannot be tried in the media, that the court of public opinion can't influence it, is crazy. There's a presidential race going on, and the court of public opinion is essential to this. And the fact that the idea of the gag order is, is totally, totally reprehensible. Now, a new report has come out by Oxford University that suggested that strict COVID lockdowns were no more effective at reducing infections than the Swedish-style softer approach, 
which allows more personal freedom and recommended rather than mandated behavior is aimed at reducing the transmission of the disease. The conclusion talent challenges the tyrannical lockdown adopted by many countries, including the U.S., during the COVID-19 pandemic. While the U.S. shut down all commerce and all business for years and destroyed the economy, Sweden took a different approach to COVID containment. On the first wave of COVID-19, it was, was much, much less strict in imposing quarantine than other countries. And allowed, China, and, and allowed the China virus to run its course. Instead of shutting down the businesses, the government relied on voluntary measures and recommendations to slow the spread of the virus. These measures, including suggested social distancing, working from home, and trying to avoid gatherings of more than 50 people. But it was not mandatory. It was voluntary. And the data indicates this study found at Oxford University that there were no material differences in fatalities between the countries that used the stricter American system and Sweden, which did not. This leads the casual observer to question why the U.S. killed its own economy. And obviously, what's emerged from this, and now we're at a bit of a distance from it, we can study it, is that all of this stuff was unnecessary. We didn't have to do any of it. We didn't have to have lockdowns. We didn't have to close businesses. We didn't have to require people to socially distance. We didn't have to discharge people from their jobs because they wouldn't take vaccinations. We did not have to do any of this. And the control of Sweden where they didn't do any of it, and there is no difference in the rates of diseases, hospitalizations, or deaths in Sweden than in the United States. We see this a little bit in microcosm where Florida did better than New York, even though New York instituted these draconian mandatory measures and Florida didn't. The fact is that COVID was largely a disease of the elderly. It was a disease of people over the age of 65. Uh, About 80% of the deaths were in people over 65 and most of the remaining 20% were in people over 55. And most of the deaths among people under 65 were in people who had compromised immune systems, other diseases, underlying conditions like cancer or heart disease, and they succumbed to those. And to to lock everyone up in the way that they did is just was outrageous and turns out not to be useful. Give me land, lots of land, under starry skies. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please. Don't fence me in, just turn me loose. Don't fence me in. And the whole basis of the response to COVID was to fence us in. And of course, I believe that this was a deliberate overreaction by the Democrats to fix and rig the election of 2020. Um, Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, had been kicking around the idea of absentee ballots and remote voting 
For years, it was a Democratic priority. They claimed to increase turnout. In fact, it was to be able to rig the election. And uh, when COVID came in, it provided the ideal excuse. And don't think for a moment it was coincidental that COVID originated in China, the country most hurt by Donald Trump's sanctions and his and his uh, trade embargo, and that Trump could not be defeated in the election. He was way too popular. And COVID came in, knocked the hell out of the American economy, knocked the hell out of Trump's re-election plans, and led to Biden's election, albeit by fixed elections, but still, uh, but still it became within the realm of possibility. And uh, I believe all of this was deliberate. I believe all of this was contrived, and we're about to learn more about that. By the way, we're on the verge of learning a lot about the January 6th protests. Uh, Speaker, uh, um, the House Speaker Johnson is going to release all the hours of tapes, videotapes of that demonstration. And I believe they're going to prove that the demonstrations were overwhelmingly peaceful, that they were in the heritage and tradition of nonviolence of Martin Luther King and Barack and um, uh, and Mahatma Gandhi, and that they were not in any sense an insurrection against the American government, and that the people who've been imprisoned on that, many of whom are still in jail, some of whom are in jail in solitary confinement, were persecuted, were singled out, and that this was a manifest, unbelievable injustice. Now, one of the listeners has called me and asked me to talk about who I think will be Donald Trump's running mate. Well, this is a subject more for a marriage counselor than for a political consultant. Who can you get along with? Who will, who, what will work as a ticket? And uh, because it's going to be a woman candidate, obviously, because we need one and we should have a woman vice president and eventually a woman president. But the question is who? Now, I've recommended two names to President Trump. Uh, one is Carrie Lake, the uh, candidate now for Senate in Arizona who was cheated out of the governorship two years ago and is articulate, uh, beautiful, uh, energetic, politically savvy, and understands the issues at stake here in a way few people do and can articulate it well. The other candidate I've suggested to him is Sarah Huckabee, who um, her real name is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and she's Mike Huckabee's daughter, and she was Trump's press secretary for two or I think even three years or maybe two years, and she handled all the brickbats and all the animosity of the media without losing her cool, doing a fine job of defending Trump and articulating his policies. Then she went on to become the governor of Arkansas, the first woman governor and has done a wonderful job there, holding taxes down, stimulating economic growth, reforming the prison system, reforming the school system in fundamental ways. And I think she obviously can handle the media because of what she did for a living for several years. And both of them are strong believers in Trump's agenda, in the MAGA agenda Trump is pushing. And they're both easy people to work with. It's very You can get along with both of them. I've known them both very well. I've met with Carrie Lake two or three times, and Sarah Huckabee and I go way back. I was Mike Huckabee's political consultant 
when he was running for lieutenant governor of Arkansas in 1979, 1999, 99, yeah, 99. And, uh, and I, uh, Mike Huckabee recalls that she would be sitting on my lap while I was giving poll briefings. <laughs> so she's come from a real heritage of this stuff. And, uh, and I think that she would be a superb, superb vice president, as I think Carrie Lake would be. Now, my new book, Corrupt, The Inside Story of Biden's Dark Money, was published three weeks ago, doing very well. And it lists in one place all of the bribes, all of the payoffs, all of the shady business deals that Joe Biden used to become a millionaire and enrich his entire family. But more importantly, it lists 20 specific actions, decisions that, that, that Joe Biden made that helped China and hurt America, beginning with the decision not to investigate the origins of the COVID virus and to accept China's representation that it was a backbite that did it and not to punish them in any way, going through China's efforts to dislodge the dollar 